It's really, really good uh, to be with you here. Um, well, it's Christmas. Uh, it's here. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Some of you will be excited about that. Some of you perhaps less so. Um, but the countdown to Christmas has started. And there's certainly a familiarity about this time of year, isn't there? It all feels very familiar. The songs are familiar. The films are familiar. The adverts are familiar. Those jokes that you get in crackers, they're very, very familiar. Um, Christmas has familiar sounds to it, familiar smells to it. Um, And in the middle of it all, we'll tell the familiar Christmas story. And we know that story, don't we? The Christmas story, we know it. If you've been in church all your life, you'll know it well. If you haven't, you're very new to church, you'll still know it well. You'll have seen it and you'll know the scenes that are in it. The hillside with the sheep and the shepherds and the starlit town and that packed stable. You'll know the characters that are involved, the innkeeper, the angels, the donkey, the young pregnant woman, the wise men, the shepherds. We know it well. We know that Christmas story well. And you know, if, if we're not careful, there's a danger that we might know it too well. That it becomes a bit too over-familiar. As we tell it and retell it, maybe it loses some of its wonder, some of its mystery. Um, I mean, it's a good story. It's a nice story. But is there a danger sometimes that we make it that it's something that's just for kids? A nice little story. We put it in a school nativity. We put it on the front of a a Christmas card. We look at it for a while and then we kind of move on, get back to our normal everyday lives. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this Christmas story from three different angles. So today we're looking at the kind of the big cosmic story, the backstory, if you like. And then over the next two weeks, we're going we're to zoom in. We're going to look at it from an Old Testament perspective. And then we're going to look at the historical story from Luke's Gospel. But we're starting today with that big story. We're going to see that this story is not easy to get our heads around at all. It's full of mystery. It's profound. It's a deep story. In this room, you know, there are people of all kinds of different backgrounds, with different questions, with different stories. Well, this Christmas story is relevant for everyone. This is a story that matters. It's a story that gets right into the depths of our being, and it answers all our brokenness and all our pain and all our deep, deep questions. In reality, it's a very, very shocking story. For some, it's an offensive story. It's a blasphemous story. But to those of us who believe, this story is the only reason there's any hope. And this is a story that we can reflect on and ponder on, not just for a couple of wonder-filled nights at Christmas with the fairy lights up, but for our whole lifetime and still not really get our heads around. That's the story that we're going to look at. So are you ready to look at that story? Good, good. Um, I'm going to start with um, today looking at John 1. Um, verses 1 to 14. If you've got a Bible, um, do please turn to it now. If not, don't worry, the words should come up on the screen behind me. This is the prologue to John's Gospel. And many Bible scholars believe that this was an ancient Christian hymn. There's no doubt that this is a wonderful, profound, deep passage for us to dig into today. I'm going to pray, um, and then I'm going to read this passage through really slowly. And the reason I'm going to do that is because even the Bible passages this time of year can be very, very familiar to us. We'll have seen this passage a lot, but I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us in a fresh way through it this morning. So let's just pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your presence here this morning. 
your presence with us as we worshipped, your presence with us now, your presence with us at all times, Lord. I thank you that you're here. We're not just talking about some distant God here. We're talking about a God who is here, very present with us. And Lord, I, I ask that as I read this passage through now, these words that we may have seen hundreds of times before, Lord, speak to us afresh through them, I pray. Just as Ron prayed and as we sang in the worship song earlier, would you open up our eyes in wonder to the words in this passage? And I ask you that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to read this through slowly. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from John who's sent sorry sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Sometimes in my lunch break at work, I'll head into town and I'll go and stand in Waterstones and I'll spend a bit of time just reading through the opening lines of a few books. And the reason I'll do that is because I'll make a decision on whether I want to buy a book and read the rest of it based on that opener. Do you ever do that? <laughs> some shakes, some nods. Um, the best books... The best films, the best stories, they all start with a great opener. You know, it's fair to say that the gospel writer John knew how to tell a story. I imagine him sitting down to write this account of Jesus' life and thinking, where do I begin? 
Where do I start? How do I begin to describe this man, Jesus? See, most scholars think that the John who wrote this gospel is the same John who was a disciple of Jesus and a close friend of Jesus. The same John who spent time with him, who would have known his character and the sound of his voice. The same John who was with Jesus when he was transfigured on a mountain and there at his death on the cross. The same John who knew Jesus perhaps better than anyone. So how do you begin that story? Well, how would you begin telling a story about a friend that you know that well? See, John could have begun by describing an encounter with Jesus. Maybe the first time he met Jesus. That's a good way to start a story. Or maybe he could have started with a memory, something that just really summed Jesus up, something that spoke volumes about who he was. But John doesn't start there. You know, the other gospel writers don't start where John starts. So Matthew starts with a genealogy tracing Jesus' family line back over hundreds of years to the person of Abraham. Mark starts on the banks of the River Jordan where Jesus is coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. Luke dates his gospel by naming Roman emperors and Jewish high priests. But John begins in a completely different place. You know, while the other gospel writers root their stories in human history, John starts way, way back on a scale that we cannot even imagine. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes, in the beginning. And you can just imagine John's early readers thinking, seriously? You started there like that? See, they've heard in the beginning before. Because in the beginning are the first lines of the Bible. It's the first three words of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here, John has changed it. He's reworked it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So question, where does the Christmas story really begin? See, we think we know this story, don't we? We, Surely the, the the Christmas story begins with the angel coming to speak to Mary and Joseph and telling them they're going to have a baby. Or surely it starts with the emperor Caesar Augustus saying that there's going to be a census of the Roman Empire. Well, no. The Christmas story doesn't start there. Or maybe it's at creation then. Or is it, is it when Adam and Eve sinned? Is that when God planned to come and rescue his people? Well, no. The Bible says that for all eternity past, it was God's plan that out of love, he would create and give life in the full knowledge that people would rebel and reject him. And that he would then come and reveal himself in the person of Jesus. This Christmas story is a deep story. You know, in truth, the Christmas story has no beginning. It is rooted in the depths of eternity. Try putting that into a school nativity. So what is the big Christmas story? Well, we're going to spend our time this morning homing in on verse 14. If we could just get that um, up on the screen. So the author and minister William Barclay says of this verse, this is possibly the greatest single verse in the New Testament. And certainly the sentence for which John writes his gospel. So he writes, the word became flesh. So what or whom is this word? Well, in the Greek, it is the word logos. It's the, log- the word is the logic of the universe. He's the divine communication of God. He's the reason that anything exists. 
The word is the one through whom all things were made. He's the builder of creation and he's the blueprint of creation. The word is the reason there is light and shape and structure and color. He's the reason there's a universe and solar systems and planets and stars. And he's the reason there is life. All the incredible life that we see in our world. Sea lions and strawberries, starfish and conkers, cells and atoms. The word is the reason you breathe and the reason your heart beats. The word is the eternal, beginningless son of God who has forever, for all eternity, existed in loving union with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And the Word is himself God. The Word is Jesus. John gives us this portrait of Jesus that is vast, that is beyond our comprehension. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to understand who this Jesus really is. Towards the end of John's gospel, he writes, These things are written down that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John knows that life, eternal life, in all its fullness is at stake here, in understanding who this person, Jesus, really is. So he gives us this eternal picture of Jesus, but then he says, The word became flesh. The word became flesh. You know, to John's first readers, this whole opener would have been way, way too much for them. For his Greek readers, the word was the principle of reason that governed the world, but it could never be God himself. And for his Jewish readers, who considered God to be so holy and so other, well, the very idea of him becoming human would have been appalling. It was shocking then. It should be shocking now too. You know, in the familiarity of Christmas, let's not miss it. We may have heard this story before, but let's not let this story become normal. The word becomes flesh. The divine, eternal, infinite God becomes a human being. He doesn't just appear human. He doesn't just put on flesh. He doesn't just borrow flesh or hide behind flesh. He becomes flesh. John is speaking here of something that is completely new and completely remarkable. See, now for the first time, God has become human. He has skin. He has hair. He has eyebrows and elbows. He has a respiratory system. He has a digestive system, a nervous system. He has a heart and lungs and kidneys. He becomes flesh. Think of that word flesh. Where do you hear that word? See, John doesn't choose the word human. He doesn't write the word becomes human or a man. He says flesh. If I referred to you as flesh, you'd be offended by that. It's a physical word. It's a base word. You know, the Latin word for flesh is carnus. It's where we get the word incarnation from. It's also where we get the word carnal from. As our friend Glenn Scrivener says, it's also where we get the name chili con carne from. It means chili with meat. So eternal God becomes concrete, tangible meat. And you know, as he does, he becomes fleshy. So as that first Christmas morning dawned, the one who spoke life into being was now subject to all the conditions of human existence. Everything you and I experience, our weakness, our dependence, our mortality, God becomes vulnerable. God chooses to make himself killable. 
Let's just pause for a moment. Because this stuff is it's mind-blowing. Can you hold these two things together? God, the eternal creator, the reason for the universe becoming fragile, vulnerable human being. Still completely God, but at the same time completely human. That's Jesus. That's what the Christmas story asks us to accept. C.S. Lewis talks about this as the grand miracle. And the writer Dorothy Sayers says of it, from the beginning of time until now, it is the only thing which has ever really happened. We may call this doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The word became flesh. And then John writes, and made his dwelling among us. So Eugene Peterson, in his message, uh, paraphrase of this line, said, he writes, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. I like that. God moved into the neighborhood. With the incarnation, something new has happened. God has moved in. He's here. He's come close. See, literally translated, this line, made his dwelling, means he has tabernacled among us. He's pitched his tent here. Have you ever pitched a tent somewhere? See, the thing with tents is you don't get a lot of privacy. If you want to not make yourself heard in a tent, you really, really have to keep your voice down. Our young people find this out every year at New Day. They're, they're amazed when in the morning they, they realize that their youth leaders have heard every single thing in their nighttime conversations. Well, tents are a bit like that. But here's the point. Our God wants to be known. He wants us to know him. See, if you come and take up residence in a, in a castle with a, with a sturdy wall and a moat around it, well, that says one thing about your intention and your desire to be with people. But if you come and pitch a tent here, that is completely different. Our God wants us to know him. And again, to a, a Jewish reader of John's gospel, this idea would have been completely shocking. Because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place with his people. It was the place that housed the presence of a holy and other God. And you didn't just wander into that place. If you did, that was the end of you. But the Christmas story says that now this same holy other God is here in the person of Jesus. See, before the word became flesh, people had a partial understanding of God. But now the eternal God can be known and seen and touched. See, Jesus didn't come to deliver a message from God. He is the message. His God made completely accessible. God communicating to us in a language that we can understand. And what John's saying is that everything that he then goes on to say about Jesus in the rest of this story of his life, everything that Jesus does, it can now be understood as God doing these things. So as Jesus is lying in a manger, that's God, the creator of life, lying in an animal's feeding trough. As he works as a young trainee carpenter, that's the God who designed and made the universe, learning how to make tables. When Jesus overturns the tables in the temple court, because his house of prayer has been turned into a den of thieves, that is God displaying righteous anger. When Jesus weeps, that is God weeping. When Jesus speaks, it's God speaking. When Jesus acts, it's God acting. When he heals, it's God healing. And when he hangs on a cross, suffering and bleeding, that is the God who thought up blood cells dying for us. Try to take that in. 
Later in, in John's gospel story of Jesus' life, before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus is comforting his disciples. And his friend Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. What he's saying is, look, Jesus, you've told us what's going to happen to you, but just show us God. Show us, show us the Father. Show us his character. If we knew what he was like, then we could cope with this. And Jesus answers him, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. See, Jesus isn't just a model human, a good example for us to follow, some kind of prophet. This is God himself in a human body like ours, so we can identify with him and relate to him. Why does he do it? Why does he do it? Because to save us, God had to become one of us. Ultimately, the Christmas story is a love story. It's a rescue story on a cosmic scale. God made himself like us so he could save us. It's hard for us to imagine this. You know, no no analogy really comes close to it. C.S. Lewis Uh, The Christian author tried. He asked us to think of it like this. Lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog, and every dog, is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much. If it would help all the dogs in the world, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, hobbies, your art and literature and music, and choose instead of the intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak? Would we do that? We'd never do that. It's unimaginable, isn't it? But it's, this is just a small-scale, minute version of what Jesus has done for us. He humbles himself big, makes himself small. See, the most significant journey in the, in the Christmas story isn't the journey of a young pregnant woman on a donkey to Bethlehem, as painful as that must have been. It's the journey that Jesus took from eternity to earth. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John writes, and we have seen his glory. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that because of Christmas, we no longer need to be in the dark about what God is like. You know, he has gone to such great lengths to show us. He's pitched his tent here. He's invited us to watch him and get to know him and see him and hear him speak. You know, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. The author and Archbishop A.M. Ramsey says, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Tom Torrance served as a chaplain for the British Army in the Second World War. And he was out searching for wounded soldiers on the battlefields of Italy one day. And he came across this young soldier, around 19 years old, who was mortally wounded, with just minutes left to live. And as Tom Torrance knelt down next to this dying man, the young man looked up at him and said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance says that as the young man lay on the ground with his life ebbing away, It was his privilege to assure this young man that God is indeed really like Jesus. Is God really like Jesus? I think that's a deep question. I think that's a question that the whole world is asking, whether they phrase it like that or not. Perhaps we ask that question sometimes too. You know, all our struggles, our struggles with things like fear and with temptation, with sin, with purpose, surely they all come down to this struggle to believe that God is this good. 
You know, we sing about it here on a Sunday. Sometimes we see glimpses of his goodness, but isn't that nagging thought there sometimes in the back of our mind? Is God really like that? Is he really that good? How can God be that good when I feel like this? How can God be that good when the world looks like it does? I believe that we worry that behind this persona, behind the kindness and the compassion and the goodness of Jesus, there's another unknown God for us to fear. We can fall for the lie that at the heart of the universe is a God who says, I told you so. The God who wants to stand back and watch us make a mess of things and fall apart. But John writes, no, you've seen him. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen the glory of God. If you've seen Jesus, you know him too. You know what God is like. See, that's the wonder of Christmas, that God has revealed himself to us. And he is far, far greater than we could ever imagine. And you know, John writes, we have seen the glory of the Son of God. What does it look like, this glory? See, we all have pictures of glory. When we think of glory, we tend to think of majesty, of magnificence, of splendor. We tend to think of like a mighty king victorious in battle. But notice how it's used throughout John's gospel. So in John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about his death. See, for John, in his great story of Jesus, the glory of God is not displayed in Jesus being exalted in majesty and splendor, but in his humility, in his suffering, and in his death. You really want to understand glory? Then look at the word made flesh. Look at the vulnerability and dependence of the baby lying in a manger. Look at Jesus' life, his humanity, his compassion, the way he gave himself up for the people he loves. Look at his suffering. Look at his death. He's the king who left his throne for his people, all the while knowing what was going to come up. See, the incarnation and the humility and the suffering and the death of Jesus, this is the greatest possible display of the glory of God. The Son of God became flesh so that we who are flesh could become sons and daughters of God. And if you're still not sure of what God is like, John says he is full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, he didn't come with wrath and judgment, he came with grace and truth. He's full of grace He's free and overflowing and lavish in his goodness to a people that just don't deserve it. And at the same time, he is full of truth, never wavering from righteousness and justice. Why does he do it? Why does he come? Why does he reveal himself to us like that? Because he loves us. That's why. The Christmas story is about the truth that the God of the universe loves you. That is the point of Christmas. So what are we going to do with that story this Christmas. See, here's the problem with the localized Christmas story, with the Bethlehem story, without the, the big cosmic backstory. It can all become a bit too ignorable. It's over familiar and distant and irrelevant. It can feel like it's for another people in another place. But if God really is communicating to the world here, then it matters, whoever you are. So, what do we do with it, this story? Well, first, do we need to revolutionize our idea of God? Have you seen God in this way before? Perhaps you've seen Jesus as a great man, as a, as a moral teacher, as someone who, who you think, I'd love to be a bit more like that. But you've perhaps never seen him as God himself. 
Or perhaps you have no problem accepting a powerful creator God who made the universe, but you've never known or understood his humanity. Well, there's an invitation this Christmas to come to know him. See, John writes, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Is that you? Have you done that? He's not inviting you here just to agree with an intellectual argument, with facts about who he is. He's inviting you to receive him and to know him and to experience him in a personal relationship. That is why Jesus came. And you know, if God is really like Jesus, if he really came and gave himself for us like that, then surely, surely that is a God that's worth giving our lives to. Surely that is a God that's worth following. Perhaps you need to revolutionize your idea of God, or perhaps you need to recapture your understanding of how God, how good God is. I don't know what you think about this time of year. For you, perhaps Christmas is a welcome interruption. Maybe you love the familiarity of it all. Well, if that's you, then I want to encourage you not to miss the shock of the word made flesh. Or perhaps for you, this is a really, really difficult time. Maybe you see the trees and you hear those familiar songs and you just want to hunker down and hide away until it's all over. Well, if that's you, I want to invite you to see again the big story of the God who comes close. To gaze in wonder and awe on that God. Let's allow the big Christmas story to bring us again to worship. Let's take this opportunity to enjoy him. To get to know him again. To ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us again what he's like. And finally, let's take this opportunity to invite others to come and hear the big Christmas story. You know, this is a story that the world desperately needs to hear. Why did we come to Hazelmere? Why did we start a site in this place? It's for the people here. It's because there are people here on the estate just outside this door who are walking in darkness, who haven't yet recognized who Jesus is. People who know this Christmas story but don't know the story. People who are on our blessed lists. People who God has placed in our lives. People who God has placed in our streets. People who God loves and gave himself up for. Now we have a carol service right here next Sunday. Let's invite people to come and hear the shocking, wonderful, life-changing story of the Word who became flesh. The eternal God who took on humanity so he could rescue the people he loves. Is Christmas just for kids? Well, the kids can enjoy it too. But this is no kid's story. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Amen? Amen.